and it gives me, again, uh, great pleasure to introduce uh, the president, the founding president and CEO of the National Council on U.S. and Arab Relations, uh, a man who has uh, devoted his life to this region, to promoting understanding between the United States and the Arab world, and who has a particular home, uh, both intellectually and spiritually, uh, in the Gulf and in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, he is uh, the only Westerner who has actually uh, been present at the creation and attending each of uh, the ministerials, the heads of state summits uh, of the Gulf Cooperation Council, and he was just back from Kuwait, uh, where he attended that meeting just last week. So it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. John McCann. Thank you, Dr. Winship. Thank you, Russell Smith. Thank you for the generosity of allowing your facilities to be used for this occasion. And thank you to the, the guests and participants uh, who came to this session. Uh, there is, as you could infer or divine around the table from the introductions, an array of expertise and diversity of specialization here, born of no end of empirical education on the ground uh, in this part of Arabia and the Gulf. It is hardly a region that is synonymous with marginality. Uh, this is one of the few places, indeed it is the only place on the planet, that the United States, along with its friends, partners, and allies, have mobilized and deployed more troops, and expended more treasure, and encountered more casualties three times in the last three decades than any other place on the planet. And so its significance uh, is italicized or demonized from that perspective alone. We're talking about eight countries. Seven of them are Arab. One is Persian, Iran. And the vast majority of the energy production and exports of the region come from the seven, not the one. This particular region is also one of the least well-known amongst Americans of the nearly 20 Centers for Middle East Studies in the United States. Uh, there isn't a single course on the Arabian Peninsula and the Gulf, except at one university. And this has been the situation for the last 40 years. So there's a vast amount of chicken and egg aspect of it. Most of the specialists on this region are from the U.S. government, either from diplomats, foreign service officers, or intelligence uh, activists and analysts, as well as the armed services. In terms of the American private sector, the corporate world far outpaces uh, knowledge and understanding and meaningful information and insight as to how these policies work, how they don't work, and what are their needs, what are their concerns, what are their interests, what are their objectives, what are their relations. Uh, there's a game of catch-up ball being played, of course, uh, given what has been happening in Iraq since March 19, 2007, with the tens of thousands of Americans uh, forward deployed there, with those who work every day in Bahrain, the headquarters of America's Fifth Fleet, and those who are administering the numerous defense cooperation agreements, of which there are four with the six GCC countries, as well as an earlier, 10 years earlier, access to facilities agreement between the United States and Oman. To be sure, there's no comparable defense cooperation agreement or access to facilities agreement with Saudi Arabia, 
but here the cautionary word is not to confuse form with function. Though there isn't something in the de jure realm that there is with the other five GCC countries, there is at once both a longer engagement and intensity and extensiveness of involvement in terms of geostrategic, military security, and strategic issues there than arguably in all of the other six, five GCC countries combined. The question of the day here is with regard to where does the Gulf Cooperation Council fit into all of this matrix of global, interregional, regional, interregional, and national dynamics and tensions and issues and opportunities and challenges. And why does it exist in the first place, given the sorry, sad, wreckage and disappointing history of so many previous pan-Arab attempts at regional cooperation, integration, unity of one form or another. This one has already last, outlasted all of them save one, and that being the League of Arab States, which had its protocols agreed to in Alexandria in September 1944, and it came into existence with its doors open in February 1945, months before the founding of the United Nations. And indeed, at the United Nations Conference founding in San Francisco, it was mainly the Americans who were the host, but at the same time the most out of that depth because of all of the international and regional organizations of the last century. The one that was best known for which the United States conceived but did not join was the League of Nations. And so at San Francisco, it was Americans as often as not going over to the delegations of Iraq and of Saudi Arabia and of Egypt and of Syria to ask how they had gotten up and running their regional organization. Some see the Gulf Cooperation Council that came into being on May 25th, 1981 as a, a detraction, a distraction uh, from the League of Arab States uh, in the early months and weeks of its existence, there was admittedly no small amount of animosity, jealousy, resentment, suspicion, distrust. And yet it is in keeping with the Charter of the League of Arab States, which does include individual efforts between two or more Arab companies, countries to form building blocks upon which larger platforms of integration, coordination, collaboration, and cooperation uh, can be forged uh, subsequently. It's also in keeping with the United Nations, which has a, a whole separate uh, chapter dealing uh, with the encouragement of regional organizations. While the five permanent members of the UN Security Council have assured that they can look out for their own interest and, and uh, need to protect uh, their concerns, there is no comparable uh, guarantee for the others. Hence the encouragement of the establishment of regional organizations that can deal with issues, hopefully, effectively, without having to refer them to the United Nations Security Council. So this one, when it came into existence, was seen by 90% of the foreign affairs specialists in Washington as a security organization, as a defense organization. Why? Because the Iran-Iraq war had broken out. It was already 10 months underway and looked as though it was going to continue for a long time. And that was pretty much the lens or the set of prisms through which Westerners and Easterners and Northerners and Southerners from beyond the region perceived why it was coming into being and how it came into being. 
There's some truth in that, but the truth is linked to a context. And the context had to do with Iraq and Iran, not only what they were doing just then, which posed a threat of death on their doorstep, but what they had learned from both of them in 1976. Most historians are not even able to recall that in Oman in the fall of 1976, Sultan Qaboos stepped up to a bid to at least explore the possibilities for cooperation among all eight GCC countries. And Oman has been a pioneer ahead of the pack in more than one instance in terms of what the GCC has become and what it chose not to be. On that particular occasion, what happened was that Iraq and Iran played the roles of bullies, of the hegemons. You could barely get a word in edgewise if you were not an Iranian or an Iraqi there. Individuals who attended that conference told me when they tried to intervene were told to shut up. Each tried to outdo the other in terms of its perceived role as the rightful hegemon in the Gulf, if there was to be one, and the rightful heir to Western supremacy on military, grand geopolitical, and geostrategic presences in the region. That stemmed from 400 years before then, from the Portuguese, then the Dutch, then the British, and increasingly the United States. But it would have come into existence anyway. There was already a train rolling down the track, but not one that was reported on or, or grabbed headlines. And this was a functional train. As all of the Gulf countries that were under the British tutelage att attained their independence from 1961 and throughout the next 10 years, 1971, when they were all free of British control of their foreign affairs and defense relations, they had entered into more than 110 bilateral agreements with each other on everything from trade and investment and technology, cooperation and civil aviation and educational exchange. And no one even knew where all the copies were. There was no central uh, archive or documentation center. And so those who were not into politics so much, but into civil service and engineers and administrators and customs officials were already uh, working uh, on the side and meeting privately, usually in Kuwait, to try to find a way in which they could establish a regional organization for their economic and their te technical and their modernization and developmental objectives. Uh, the Iran-Iraq wars outbreak gave them the cover, gave them the catalyst, gave them the pretext to proceed without either one of them. And many of the Iraqis and Iranians were furious that these six hitherto amongst the most forlorn and forgotten of East Arabian polities uh, that had been neglected and had been last and the least to develop had stolen a march on them in terms of an organization that had such great promise for Arab cooperation and integration. It was appropriate that it was established in Abu Dhabi, although the last preparatory meeting for it took place in Oman and the one immediately prior to that took place in Taif, Saudi Arabia. At the one in Taif, Saudi Arabia, this was where three countries were jilted that wanted to be allowed to play a, a founding role in this organization. One was Iraq, and one was Jordan, and the other was Yemen. Even though now we're 29 years down the road, people continuously ask me and others amongst yourselves, why isn't Yemen a member? Why isn't uh, Iraq a member? When is Iran going to become a member? 
they settled this issue almost from the beginning when they coined the phraseology as to what this was to be and what it was not to be. It is an organization comprised of six member countries whose environmental, societal, cultural, historical, linguistic, and religious identities are beyond uh, dispute, and they share, and this is the key phrase, a similarity in terms of their forms of government. Both Yemen, as well as Iraq and Iran, had overthrown in revolutionary fashion all of these kinds of hereditary monarchical dynastic regimes. So this is why they were kept out from the beginning, why they have been kept out ever since, and why they have very little in the way of prospects of being invited to be members in the near term. We can come to this in the discussion period if you like. At the same time, being present at the creation of it, the deliberations for the entire founding summit were on civil, administrative, bureaucratic, technical issues. No one went anywhere near military or political issues until the final session when everybody was looking at their watches and wanting to get out of there. Sultan Qaboos asked to speak. You could have heard a pin drop. And he said, it is all well and good for us to deliberate these kinds of things for 48 hours. But we will have ourselves to blame. And for surely our grandchildren will blame us if we do not build a fence around all that we have achieved in the past two decades and link that fence to our economic and commercial cooperation to pay for that fence and to link the two of them together. Uh, it bothered a lot of people that he took that stance, but within five months, everyone was saying the same thing out of their mouths. And this was not the first time that he stood alone and was visionary and took a strategic position that the others ultimately came around to agree. So it does have a defense aspect to it. On the other hand, it is off to the side. It is away from the headlights. It's away from the headlines. Whereas the GCC proper, its foreign ministers meet four times a year if absences are not accepted. And this means that they have met 120 times to build up a degree of comfort and confidence and trust amongst themselves and diminish what otherwise would have been extensive distrust and mutual suspicion, suspicion amongst them. The ministries of defense meet but once a year. And likewise, the ministers of interior meet but once a year. And they meet off to the side in their meetings, of course, are classified in their deliberations and kept secret. Uh, but this is their intent that look, we are next door to two behemoths in the case of Iraq's population being equal to all of six of us combined, and with Iran's population three times all six of us combined, and both of them opportunistic and ambitious and an expansionistic mode. The other reason for the economic interest being greater in addition to the functional uh, dynamic that I mentioned before was answered when people began to ask the foreign ministers, why are you focusing more on the economic? And the answer was simple, it's because people's material needs are uppermost amongst, amongst their wants. These have been the peoples in the Middle East, the Arab countries, the Islamic world, that have been the last and the least to develop, and they're in the greatest of hurry to catch up with the rest. And so trying to represent uh, our people's needs through the consultative and consensual process, this is why we have focused on the economic 
to a greater degree. And secondly, because of the European Union. This is our model. There's nothing in the United States or elsewhere in the Americas that we can see, that we can learn from, that we think is within our reach. But what the European Union has done and is doing, we think that we can emulate and tailor and adapt it to ourselves. And here's the unusual aspect, though. With regard to the U European Union success, ponder the following, ponder the implications of each one. When it began, it also began with six countries in 1951, Treaty of Rome. When it began, it already had a foundation upon which to begin to build, namely the coal and steel community, where there was economic and technical and specifications and standards for uh, an industrial and an infrastructural cooperation uh, amongst the founders there. Consider as well that the Marshall Plan had just come into being in June of 19. 47 there, and that all of them were the recipients uh, of assistance from the United States uh, to repair and restore as quickly as possible their war-damaged economies. And ponder as well the implications of the fact that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization had been established with the United States as a full-fledged uh, member, guaranteeing the security of all of the member states. Not one of these circumstances or factors or forces or related phenomena applied when these six uh, came together. So if you look at it as a glass more half full than empty and, and leaking, uh, one can uh, focus on how remarkable it is that it has succeeded in spite of not having those facilitated forces on one hand and the fact that they've had three major wars on their doorstep, one of them continuing as we speak uh, to the present. And what happens when a GCC meeting takes place? The first thing that happens is a review of everything from the previous summit. The, the rulers meet, they are the Supreme Council, but once a year. The foreign ministers meet four times a year. And they review all of the economic, the political, the geostrategic, the military defense issues and report on what has been achieved and they give credit and thanks where credit and thanks are due. And they highlight uh, the reasons why the task proved elusive, why they have to move the goalposts and the deadline down the road, and who needs to do what, why, and how, and when. They also then turn to the region-specific issues, and not necessarily in the sequence or to the degree that we outsiders would think uh, would be logical and appropriate. For example, two issues are always addressed before any others, because these are the two oldest. One is the UAE's issue, with Iran still in occupation, forcefully so, of three of its islands. And the second one, the unsettled, outstanding issues between Iraq, between Kuwait and Iraq. These are the first two. And so in the manner of concentric circles, they focus on the members more pronounced and unsolved needs and then branch out again in geographic concentric circles, in this case to Iran and Iraq in different ways in terms of the threats that each is seen to pose to all six, and then Yemen, which is on the Arabian Peninsula, and then after that, not before, after that to the Arab-Israeli conflict and some of the issues pertaining to India and Pakistan and Afghanistan. That's the sequence, that's the emphasis, that's the prioritization of how they are focused on at that time. With regard to Iraq, 
one would be surprised that they speak about Iraq less at these summits than one might imagine or expect or believe. And a reason has to do going back to 1976 and their memories of Iraq's view towards all six of these countries, their forms of government, their lesser degree of development, their lacking in agricultural sector, they're lacking in industrial sector, they're lacking the leadership and the drive and the energy of the Ba'ath Party, they're not having fought in a war uh, like Iraq did with Iran and suffered as many casualties. So this suspicion about Iraq's ultimate intentions, not just towards Kuwait, but all the others there, is one aspect of it, and the same with regard to Iran. But it also has to do with March 1975, and if I had to cite one single agreement that is the strategic glue of all six of them, it is the Algiers Accord of March 1975. And this took place in the echoes and the wakes and the shadows of Western and increasingly American talk about doing the unthinkable, of utilizing force and mobilizing and deploying force to the oil fields and the gas fields of the Gulf uh, because of the world economic situation and the oil embargo that had preceded it until March of 1974. The first article of what they agreed to in Algiers in March 75 was non-interference in one another's domestic affairs. If you can believe it, looking in the rearview mirror, the Shah of Iran and Saddam Hussein signed that agreement, and they honored it. They held to it solemnly for the first four years until Khomeini returned to Iran from Paris early February of 1979 and broke it from the first day and every day for the next 19 months before the Iran-Iraq war began. And that particular principle is as valid now in their minds. There's no division amongst them that I can discern until today as it was reaffirmed on March 6, 1991. Perhaps coincidentally, but in a nice kind of complimentary way, the same evening that George H.W. Bush spoke before a joint session of Congress and called for a new world war, the six GCC countries plus Syria plus Egypt called for a new regional order because the one that had existed since Camp David had been shattered to smithereens with the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait there. And that's the same first principle in the Damascus Accords as well. So the bottom line here is non-interference in Iraq's affairs, lest they open the door and leave them exposed and vulnerable at any point to Iraq's interference in their affairs. And the same thing with regard to Iran. There's no discussion about Iran's elections. There's no discussions about fraud or free and fair or open and transparent electoral processes. There's no discussion about Ahmadinejad's uh, prospects or this faction or that faction, et cetera, for the exact same regions, the reasons that I gave before, of not giving Iran any pretext uh, to interfere in their societies to any greater degree than Iran already has over the, the last uh, 30 years. With regard to Yemen this time, yes, they did address Yemen, but in a unanimous support for Saudi Arabia's position, as well as the Yemen government's position. 
And so going over and beyond much of what has passed for conventional wisdom or established thought or informed opinion regarding what has been happening and has not been happening in Yemen, you have something profoundly different and profoundly less than what the media has made out to be. Uh, the words crisis are advisedly used. But this particular crisis thus far for Yemen pales into uh, insignificance by comparison and contrast to five previous crises that Yemen has uh, dealt with over the last 80 years. The first uh, being from the late 1930s and the early 1941, when they had three years of drought in the Hadramaut, home of Bin Laden and his family and when the Japanese invaded Indonesia and they dried up all of the remittances from Indonesia and Malaya to the people of South Yemen. Nothing has happened quite like that since. Or the 1962-67 civil war in northern Yemen, which produced the Middle East's largest artificial limbs factory that I went to right at the end of that war. Or the war in the south between 64 and 67 of South Yemen against the British, where the British had more troops tied in in the field than at any time since they left Burma. Or fast forward to the Civil War from April of 94 to July of 1994, when the south seceded, or tried to secede, declared its secession, and every single GCC country backed it. So this one is, is no comparison to any of those five. And the old-timers know this, but new newcomers are forgiven if, if they do not see things in terms of that kind of context or background or perspective. With regard to Palestine, it's of course the issue that most emotionally uh, is the cause of pain in people's heart. And it is also the issue with regard to which the United States, uh, that protector first and last resort, is judged uh, more in an indicted way than on any of the other issues outstanding in the region. One, because it's the oldest issue. Two, it's because it's seen as the largest issue impacting so many of the other conflicts. And three, it's because it's the most pervasive issue at the levels of the youth and those who are literate and watch the television and Al Jazeera and read and aware of what has happened and what has not happened uh, to and for the people of Palestine, especially as last year some convened right when Operation Cast Lead was launched by the Israelis for some 23 days in, in the Gaza Strip. And commentary largely off to the sidelines about how is it that a country of 303 million, the United States, cannot get basic humanitarian supplies into Gaza with its 1.5 billion people in a stretch of land five miles wide by 25 miles long. No one has the easy answers for these, but they make people uneasy in not having any easy answers for these, especially when people speak about the rule of law and establishment and respect for the rule of law and the fact that there are some 300,000 people in the GCC countries who've graduated from American universities, maybe half in the social sciences, arts and humanities, the other half in the hard sciences where there are no Americans as of yet who graduated from any of the six GCC universities. So there's an imbalance of knowledge and understanding the one of the other. There's an imbalance of empathy and sensitivity and appreciation by one of uh, the situation of the other. 
pondered the following, that in Saudi Arabia's cabinet, every day since 1975, there have been more American-trained PhDs in its cabinet than there have been PhDs of any kind in the U.S. cabinet, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the House of Representatives combined. So this aspect of it, they are able to see the constraints under which an American government, Congress, as well as executive branch, uh, live and, and, and must operate, uh, but do not see a comparable degree of empathy and understanding uh, towards their options, which are far fewer than ours, being a country with mountains and valleys and rivers and streams and green things and growing things and renewable things, we trade in 1,128 categories of goods and services. These countries trade in only seven. So there's a massive imbalance in terms of strategic economic resources and opportunities too. More specifically now, what did they agree to on this time? What did they push the envelope further on this time? One was to deal with the issue of a monetary union, a currency, common currency, in ways that perhaps amounted to spin or finesse, but at least there was an agreement that Saudi Arabia would be tasked with this point forward, dealing with the technical procedures, the rules, the regulations, the laws, the policies, the administrative systems uh, that would be required when and if a common currency comes into pass. They were able to lighten the seriousness of this by comparing themselves again with the European Union, which now has, correct me if I'm wrong, 29 million members, and only 17 of them, the most recent, I think, being Slovakia, having signed on to the Euro, and countries like Great Britain wanting to have both. They remain wedded to the pound sterling and also accept the Euro. Questions of dignity, pride, uh, national honor, emblem, emblematic, symbolomatic uh, and traditions and institutions and beliefs and practices are sometimes the last and the hardest and the slowest things to die. So there is comparable reservation on the part of some. Oman, for example, has a similar degree of pride in its uh, independence and its national sovereignty and its territorial integrity, one at hard cost harder than any of the others in the last uh, 40 years. And Oman, too, uh, has perhaps the closest, most intimate, most extensive direct experience uh, with the British uh, of any of the six uh, GCC countries. But it also uh, had reluctance on a matter of principle. And this was the degree to which a country's indebtedness can be an acceptable percentage of its gross national product. And the European Union countries focus on this as well in Maastricht. Oman found this unacceptable, constrictive, and curbing, because being the last to develop of the six, uh, it recognizes that it may have to borrow more than any of the others in order to catch up faster than would otherwise be the case. And the UAE has also shown its reluctance, in part because it fancied, as did Bahrain, as did Kuwait, as did Saudi Arabia, that they would be the headquarters for this new monetary authority. Not everybody can be a, a headquarters as such. Bahrain and Kuwait found it easier to side with Saudi Arabia, not least because they are tighter than the three at the southern end of the Gulf, not least because they are all from the same extended tribal confederation, not least because they've longer cooperated and collaborated on these kinds of, of, of prickly uh, geopolitical uh, issues. 
but the UAE and Oman them, uh, themselves tight as can be. We can come back in the Q&A on, on that. The electricity grid was also agreed to, not only agreed to, but it was switched on. It has been switched on twice since the last summer. This has been coming since 1986. This is 23 years it took to bring this particular product uh, project to completion. Uh, having to do with no end of technical details, bidding, and Kuwait Institute for Science and Research, Saudi Arabia's University of Petroleum and Minerals, uh, Canadian consulting firms, uh, judging the technical viability and the feasibility and the economic merits of it. Uh, but finally, it exists for four of the GCC countries, the four in the north, Kuwait, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. And there are two overland uh, 400 megawatt uh, cables that go from Kuwait to Doha, Qatar. And there are two that go from Saudi Arabia under the sea into Bahrain. And the, uh, the switching station or the monitoring or the central uh, station or the three relay stations in Saudi Arabia. And why did they do this? They did this so as to project an image of being forward-looking, long-term looking, infrastructure looking, trying to find additional ways to integrate themselves economically, trying to work in advance of power outages and brownouts and, and shortages, uh, trying to show that they were willing to share what they had with each other, trying to reduce the economic outlay for having spare capacity because all six would have had to do that, whereas now they, they can reduce their spare capacity by 50%, and they projected some $4 billion in savings as a result of, of just making this, even though it's taken them that long. Related to that was the agreement on a pan-GCC railway that will go from Kuwait to northern Oman. Uh, Mr. Shanfari can perhaps correct me if I'm factually uh, in error on any of this, uh, but not yet to Salalah, uh, the port, and, and Dofar, Oman's the southernmost uh, uh, province as such. And it will not necessarily hug the coast, but it will parallel the coast. It will be inland, uh, and, and therefore in eastern Arabia, northeastern Arabia from Kuwait all the way to Oman. And here they are thinking in ways that I don't hear or see or read any Americans thinking in terms of the, the revival of railway use. There are at least four separate railway projects in Saudi Arabia that are further down the road than this one. Uh, but this one has a long-term objective of linking up with Africa and the Southwest and linking up with the EU through Arab uh, North Africa. And much of the inspiration is coming from the talks between the Chinese and the Russians in the past several months, where uh, Vladimir Yapulin, the uh, Russian uh, railroad transportation uh, minister, has met with his Chinese counterparts, where the Russians want to develop northeastern Russia, which is under tundra, but rich in strategic minerals. But Russia doesn't have the financing and the capitalization uh, ability to underwrite that strategic swift shift in its economic strategic objectives. China is offering to finance it with Uncle Sam's and Aunt Samantha's dollars into the American unit for which the Chinese have a trillion accumulated in terms of U.S. Treasury uh, uh, debt instruments as such. And lastly is a commitment to explore the possibilities 
of not repeating what they did with a joint command in the northwest part of Saudi Arabia inside from Kuwait, but rather a rapid deployment force of their own with double-headed soldiers and sailors and air personnel in the six armed forces that will include a special operations component theoretically and strategically to begin to match the special operations component that Iran has. I'll answer any questions, including the GCC or any of its member countries, to the best of my ability.